Welcome to Jonathan on Money, the personal finance podcast that brings you the latest insights and strategies to help you achieve your financial goals. I'm your host, Jonathan I. Shankman. On this podcast, we'll cover everything from investing, financial planning, retirement, and behavioral finance. I'll share advice and practical tips to help you make the most of your money. So whether you're just starting out or looking to take your finances to the next level, Jonathan on Money is here to help. Let's dive into this week's show. Welcome to today's episode of Jonathan on Money. This week, I'm going to share a speech that I gave at the Young Israel Flatbush Palmatora on the topic of the most pressing financial issues facing the Frum community today, perspective and practical solutions. This speech was given on November 11th to a packed house. This was especially impressive since it was a Saturday night. I guess Brooklyn people are just really passionate about learning about personal finances. My speech covered a variety of important topics, including Jewish inflation, where I outlined the problem and offer practical solutions. I cover halakhic considerations with estate planning and philanthropy. The third topic is the impact of social pressures on our investments and lifestyle. I touch on the important but often overlooked topic of being sneeze about money, and I end it with the important Jewish considerations when it comes to retirement planning. And I hope you enjoy this very special episode voice. Uh, Alan had asked me to cover a wide range of topics today, so I'll do my best to cover as much as I can within the next 50 minutes or so. So one of the interesting things about being a personal finance columnist for the Jewish press and running my own wealth management firm is that I tend to notice common themes and pain points from the dozens of from people that I speak with every week about their finances. And these issues span a variety of areas in financial planning, including investing, behavioral finance, charitable giving, some halakhic issues, and many more. However, many of the articles and literature I've read on the pressing financial issues in the Jewish community are primarily focused on how expensive the cost of a from lifestyle is and for the Jewish community to make changes to make it more affordable. This may include changes to the way yeshivas are run with more reliance on technology and potentially offering less services, raising money from the broader Jewish community, and many more. That is always a worthwhile discussion, but not my focus here tonight. I'll let the Rabbanim and the community leaders who are much smarter than me focus on those issues. Tonight, I will focus on the financial issues prevalent within the Orthodox Jewish community, but I'll do from my vantage point as a financial advisor. My job is to empower people in the from community to focus on what is in their control so they're able to achieve the financial goals, maintain the lifestyle they want, avoid the financial and social pitfalls that arise from living in an Orthodox community, and also manage their funds more intentionally. And I've arranged my talk, and everyone has a handout in front of them, um, to focus on five main topics. Uh, the first is I termed Jewish inflation. And I'll spend about 20 minutes both outlining the problem and offering practical solutions. The second is halakha considerations with estate planning and philanthropy. The third is the impact of social pressures on our investments and lifestyle, what I often refer to as keeping up with the Goldsteins. They're cousins of the Joneses, obviously. The third is the impact. Is, uh, the, the, thir- the next one is I'll touch on the important and overlooked topic of being sneeze about money. And finally, I'll end with the important Jewish considerations when it comes to retirement planning. And my goal tonight is for everyone to hopefully take away at least a nugget or two that they can either apply to their own lives or at the very least give them something to bring up with their financial advisors they work to set up their own financial plan. I'll start with some basic and fundamental ideas and gradually move to strategies that are not as commonly discussed. Stated bluntly, if you're bored out of your mind for the first five to ten minutes, things should get more interesting. It's just important that I start with the fundamentals. And I'll leave ample time for questions at the end of my prepared remarks. So if you do have a question, jot it down. I'm happy to stay as long as people want. And with that, let's just jump into it. 
So it's no secret that the cost of a from lifestyle can be prohibitively expensive. Affording food, housing, yeshiva education are just a few of the major financial outlays that families face. And I use the phrase Jewish inflation to encapsulate the fact that the price for these items may be far greater than may be typical for similar products and services in communities around the country. For instance, strong demand for housing within walking distance to a shul causes home prices to be elevated within a narrow radius. Similarly, items that require extra steps or supervision like kosher food will also cost more. Since we are all facing Jewish inflation, let's discuss some practical strategies that Frum families can implement within their own finances to help alleviate this financial stress. It's important that I emphasize right now that there's no magic bullet or easy solution to these issues. I'm not gonna reveal some new hop that will magically make and make it easy for your finances to work. It will be hard work and it will require some tough decisions. That being said, every suggestion that I give is practical and they can be effective when implemented. The first suggestion is to review your cash flow to, in order to minimize discretionary expenses. There are two different types of expenses, non-discretionary and discretionary expenses. Non-discretionary expenses are mandatory. This includes utilities, rent, mortgage payments, taxes, grocery bills, to name just a few. Discretionary expenses, on the other hand, are not mandatory and can be avoided or minimized with proper planning. These include vacations, streaming services, leasing a luxury vehicle, a gym membership, and many more. Let me flesh this out a bit by using food as an example. Everybody needs to eat, but going out to eat is a luxury that shouldn't be indulged in if you're having a problem paying your housing costs or your yeshiva tuition payments. Furthermore, if you purchase prepared foods for Shabbos, the financial outlay is a multiple of what it would cost to prepare the same meal by cooking at home. The same could be said about eating out breakfast, lunch, and dinner instead of brown bagging when you're at work. This may seem elementary and may not apply to many people in this room. However, for from families that are struggling with affording the basics, taking control of how you spend money on food is imperative. Another way to minimize your discretionary expenses is when it comes to your choice of automobile. Remember, the point of a car is to get a person from point A to point B. It's not to have the latest model luxury vehicle or to impress your friends. A used car or leasing a basic model may be all that is necessary to address your transportation needs. Furthermore, it's rarely necessary for a family to have more than two cars. The financial outlay for another vehicle, the insurance, the upkeep costs associated with it is an unnecessary expense for most families and could be quite costly and burdensome. Traveling for vacation is also a discretionary expense. While it's important to take time off for mental health reasons, it's not vital to travel to Miami for yeshiva break or to go to Israel for Pesach, although I think people go to much more exotic places these days like Panama and Dubai. The, the point is that the amount of money, I can't believe they have a Pesach program in Dubai, that's just crazy. The point is that the amount of money a family can save by having a staycation instead of traveling is significant. One fascinating illustration of the concept of overspending is when it comes to housing. It's interesting to note that the average house in America in the 1950s was 983 square feet. By the 1980s, it was 1,740 square feet, and today it's approximately 2,700 square feet. A larger house means more upkeep costs and higher taxes. It also probably means you took out a larger mortgage to be able to purchase the home. While it's important for a family to live comfortably, it's also important to note that housing is one of the most significant costs in the budget of any family. It's important for young families in the market for a new home, and I pity anybody who needs to take out a mortgage in this environment. But it's important that they are honest with themselves about how much space they actually need and what they can actually afford. 
The ability to live in a house that is appropriate for your needs and income can make a huge difference in your monthly cash flow. If you comb through your budget, you will quickly see that there are many discretionary items similar to the ones I mentioned that could be eliminated. Do you pay for multiple video streaming services, a gym membership that you never use, or magazine and online subscriptions that you never read? Each one of these items may not seem like a lot. However, when you tally these expenses together on an annual basis, you may be looking at many thousands of dollars a year year in savings. These savings will help free up dollars that could be spent on necessities like food and yeshiva tuition. Take a quick turn. The second strategy is to help with Jewish inflation is the benefits of relocating. I'm not telling everyone to leave the community. I'm just... It's a popular suggestion. Relocating is not a topic frequently discussed by personal finance gurus. It's tough to uproot family, friends, and a community to which you've grown accustomed. In other words, it's a very unpopular suggestion. However, some of the largest expenses for families are those associated with where they choose to live. And I know this is a hypocritical suggestion coming from me. I live in, the, I live in West Hempstead, and the housing prices are astronomical, and the property taxes are equally as brutal. However, if you really want to lower your expenses, there are few lifestyle decisions more impactful than moving to a community with a cheaper cost of living. I'm fortunate to have cl- from clients and communities not only in the tri-state area, but around the country. And I'm always astounded when friends and clients in other parts of the country tell me how much they've spent to purchase a new home. In some Midwest communities, a family could buy a large home on a substantial piece of land for what it would cost to purchase a knockdown house on no land in in many areas where we live, in most places in Long Island, Westchester, northern New Jersey. It's important to note that you do not need to be a pioneer to move outside the New York, Miami, Los Angeles, Chicago areas. I happen to be a passionate road tripper, and I've been all around the country, and there are thriving Jewish communities all over the United States with well-established Jewish infrastructure and even some kosher restaurants. Aside from the purchase price, another important housing-related benefit of moving outside a large city, and something I just alluded to, is the possibility of lower property taxes. The level of ongoing property taxes can be quite onerous in parts of the country. It's not uncommon to pay twenty, thirty, or $40,000 a year in property taxes in some New York metropolitan towns. This is like putting a kid through yeshiva every year, except the child will eventually graduate and get a job, whereas taxes never end and keep rising. On the subject of yeshiva costs, I read an article in the New York Post recently that discussed some of the leading Jewish high schools in New York. What jumped out immediately was the price tag. In the article, tuition costs range from $23,000 to $50,000 a year per child per year. Granted, there are plenty of other yeshivas in the areas that cost less, but those numbers are alarmingly high and a challenge that many New York parents face. From families living outside the New York area may have options that are significantly more cost-effective, and in some states there may even be access to a government voucher system that allots funds to help offset the cost of tuition. The stress of moving can't be ignored. However, the lifestyle and financial benefits of relocation may make it worthwhile. Deciding to proactively plant your roots in another location may lower your expenses and make affording from lifestyle much more manageable. The third suggestion to combat Jewish inflation is to increase one's household income. My previous suggestions, they focused on the expense side of one's personal income statement. However, it's equally important to spend time on the revenue side of the income statement to determine how to generate more money to improve a family's monthly cash flow. Now, I'm sure some of you are thinking, Yoni, it's very easy just to say you should make more money. Practically, how do you do it? Let me offer just a few suggestions. 
The first is the importance of having a dual income household. In decades past, it was more common for only one spouse to work. Today, it's far more common to encounter families with both spouses working. A dual income has become a necessity in this expensive world in which we live. If you are under financial stress and only have one spouse working, then it may be time for the other spouse to consider entering the workforce. Many people here will correctly point out that it's not always possible for both spouses to work, given the rigors and time commitment of raising a family. And I understand this, I have three little kids at home and they're a handful. However, I'd counter with a reminder that entering the workforce doesn't mean you need to work 40 hours a week or more. Even a part-time role that brings in another few thousand dollars a month can make all the difference for many families. Some companies may even provide relatively generous and insurance benefits to part-time employees and may also be helpful for your financial health. Another suggestion may make, that may make is to leverage your skills in another capacity. Sometimes folks simply do not cash in on their full earnings potential. For example, you may like working at a particular organization, but if they're unwilling or unable to pay you market rate, there's nothing wrong with exploring the market to get a higher paying role so you can more easily support your family. Examples of this may be working for a small company or a not-for-profit. These organizations may be more strapped for cash and can't afford to pay you more. However, you could take your talents in computers, marketing, human resources, or in any other in-demand skill set and work for a larger company or a for-profit organization. You may be able to realize an instantaneous increase in your earnings. The next suggestion to increase household income is you can explore roles outside your geographic location. One of the silver linings of COVID has been the willingness of companies to hire remote employees outside their geographic location. This has led to people in all fields working remotely more seamlessly. I personally have, have clients that are New York-based businessmen that live in Florida. I have a California-employed physician that made Aliyah and lives in Israel. And I recently read about a financial services firm based in Chicago that's look, actively looking to recruit people from around the country. If you're, you're in a location where the opportunities are limited, explore opportunities from other parts of the U.S. or even abroad. You may be surprised how many companies would be open to having the right candidate work remotely regardless of, the, of their location and at an attractive salary. And from my personal experience, I now more seamlessly than ever have been working with families all over the country and even in Israel. Some clients I haven't even met before in person, yet between Zoom and phone and uh, being able to sign documents electronically, uh, it's now more seamlessly than ever to work from, with somebody that's a hundred or thousands of miles away, and that's no longer a hurdle. One final suggestion on how to increase your income is to develop a side hustle within your field of expertise. A side hustle is when an individual starts a business outside their regular employment to earn extra cash. Normally, I'm not a big fan of side jobs that are not relevant to your line of work. I think in many situations, it leads to a lack of focus, and it's hard to do two jobs well. That being said, doing additional work that is within your line of business in order to generate extra income is sensible for many people. For example, it may make sense for a Rebbe at an elementary school to tutor at night or on the weekends for extra money. He's just leveraging his existing expertise to help students outside of normal business hours. Furthermore, utilizing Zoom or FaceTime for these sessions doesn't limit his side hustle to where he lives. He can teach Torah to students around the world from the comfort of his home. The only requirement is access to the internet and a phone or a computer. Okay, the fourth and final proactive suggestion to help afford living a from lifestyle, and will also help bring all these previous suggestions together, 
which is to focus on trade-offs and what I've termed living your rich life. Trade-offs exist in all aspects of life. We face constraints and have a finite amount of time and resources. So by choosing one thing, we necessarily are diminishing or eliminating something else. The trade-offs generally are not choices between right and wrong, but decisions in how we'd like to live our lives. For example, I can decide to have a steak for dinner, but I'll need to forego my milkshake later. That's a trade-off between entree and dessert. I can spend more hours a day working, but that means spending less time with my family. Similarly, a businessman may only have one hour a day to learn Torah. He could go to a shir on Dafiomi or go to a parshat shir. It's not about right or wrong. It's just a matter of how he'd like to spend his time. Trade-offs come up with our personal finances as well. With a finite income stream, all spending decisions are trade-off between expenses, savings, and investments. An individual can decide to lease a luxury vehicle, but a portion of that monthly car payment could have been saved in retirement account and invested towards his financial future instead of paying for an expensive car. When deciding where to live, there may be trade-offs between the percentage of your income that goes towards housing costs and the number of options for from amenities like yeshivas, shuls, and kosher restaurants, which are more plentiful and high cost of living communities. Choosing to stay at a lower paying job that you love may require slashing your discretionary spending more aggressively. Living a life where a from, life, a from, where a from neighborhood, yeshiva education, and kosher food are paramount can be costly and will undoubtedly require trade-offs to make it possible. However, every family has their own set of lifestyle choices and goals. Everyone has their own priorities that will dictate which of my previous suggestions are feasible and which are unattractive. In order to achieve the life that you want for your family, it's important to appreciate the impact of trade-offs and recognize where they come up within your personal finances. And the consequences of trade-offs cuts both ways. For instance, one may decide to save a lot, on, a lot of money by living frugally and never indulging in travel, eating out, or other luxury items. However, the consequences of this decision is missing out on activities that may be more fun and enjoyable. If you work hard for your money and live within your means, then, then choosing to live like a miser may not be an optimal decision for many. And with many things in life, the key is balance, and I call the juggling of financial trade-offs living your rich life. The concept is that everyone's ideal life looks different. For example, while one family might value going on summer vacation every year, they may place little importance to going out to eat throughout the year. Another family may want to live in a smaller house in New York to be close to family rather than move to the Midwest where they could afford something much larger. Every family must clearly define what's important to them and then eliminate other items that are less important to free up cash flow. I always tell my clients that before developing a financial plan, they should take the time to determine what is their rich life. This requires sitting down with a piece of paper, and this is something you can do at home on your own, and determine what are your goals and aspirations? What is important to you personally? What are things that are low, are low priority to you? Presumably among the audience here or any from a crowd, the answer will likely have some common themes around caring for loved ones and living a Torah lifestyle. However, beyond that, everyone's definition of a rich life is different. The key is aligning your specific values with your financial plan and eliminating items that are a waste of money, time, and energy. Okay, before we move on to our next section, I, want, I just want to take 30 seconds, seconds to sum up this section and offer some brief thoughts on what parents and grandparents can do to help younger family members that may be struggling financially. And the first thing 
in the overarching theme here is that all these points is to focus on the $30,000 decisions, not the $3 decisions. A better job, where you live, not indulging in luxury vehicles are all more important than the decision to buy the occasional latte at Starbucks. Focus on those big financial decisions, not more than the little ones. Two, parents and grandparents should encourage open-mindedness on where their children should live, where they should consider working, and should also encourage them to be practical on the careers that they choose. And three, families may want to rethink their estate plan and gifting strategy to possibly give money to kids or grandkids earlier while they're alive rather than at, than at death. Sure, you may then leave them with less money when you pass away. However, kids will get money when they need it the most, as they're growing their families and getting established. This will help them avoid the struggles so many young people face as they endeavor to afford a from lifestyle. And on that point of estate planning, let's move to our next section, which is estate planning and charitable giving, but within a firm context. Okay. Before I discuss estate planning, it's important for me to state that I am not an estate planning attorney. I'm an investment and financial advisor, and I work with many estate planning attorneys to help put plans into place, but I am not a practitioner in the field. I'm also not a halakhic authority of any kind, which I'm sure is abundantly clear. That being said, if you do have specific questions on estate planning, you will need to speak to your estate planning lawyer. If you have halakhic questions on these topics, which I will touch on briefly here, you should obviously speak to your local rabbi. My goal is merely to provide a general overview of these subjects. Now that I got that disclaimer out of the way, let's first jump into what every family should consider as part of a prudent estate plan. Having a will which, which specifies how you like your assets divide up upon your death. You should have a power of attorney, which is an authority for another person to act in either specified or all legal and financial matters on your behalf. A healthcare proxy, which allows a person who can make healthcare decisions for you if you're unable to communicate those decisions by your, on yourself and advanced medical directives, which provide your decisions regarding medical intervention and end-of-life preferences, which are clearly stated in the legally binding document. Updated beneficiary information on all your accounts, including retirement and insurance. The last thing anybody wants is their money to go to someone they don't want, like an ex-spouse, and you'll be shocked at how often something like that happens. And finally, possibly including a trust of some, some sort if your estate planning attorney thinks it makes sense. In addition to folks not updating their beneficiary designations, I am astounded at how many people set up trusts and never actually fund them properly. This is something your advisor should ensure is set up appropriately. On all these important items, an attorney will take the lead and your financial advisor should work hand in hand with them to ensure that they're set up appropriately. Now let's touch on some of the halakhic considerations. So Judaism has very specific guidelines on how a state should be distributed through a will. The tiers of inheritance and order priority are first a son and a son's male heirs uh, inherit an individual's estate. Next, if there are no male heirs, a daughter can inherit the estate. If someone has no descendants at all, then their father and brothers can inherit. A husband inherits his wife's estate, but not vice versa. Then a male firstborn is entitled to a double portion. Next, a widow is entitled to have her needs and living facilities provided for from her husband's estate for the rest of her life or until she's remarried. And finally, unmarried daughters are entitled to support and maintenance from her father's estate. While these laws were likely followed faithfully years ago, as times have evolved, there are now simple solutions within Jewish law that allow families to distribute assets in a way that more accurately reflects their desires. 
The first is utilizing Ashtar Chatzizachor. Ashtar Chatzizachor is a Jewish will drafted in accordance with Jewish law, which creates a means of circumventing, which may not be the best word, but allows one to sidestep the biblical inheritance requirements without violating them. The Ashtar Chatzizachor serves as a supplement to a secular will. To get just a bit in the weeds for just a second and how it operates, this works by having the testator or the person who set up the will record that a debt was made to an heir that takes effect an hour before death. A stipulation is made that this debt is waived if the heir follows the rules of the secular will. The testator assumes a debt much greater than the expected size of the estate, so the heirs are motivated to honor the terms of the will in order for the debt to be waived. The debt is created by a testator accepting symbolic consideration. So for example, if a son is expecting to receive the entire estate and leave his sister with nothing, he'll be faced with a debt burden that is much larger than his actual inheritance. This will motivate him to relinquish his rights under Jewish law, and everyone will inherit according to the secular will. This is the type of situation where the client should seek out rabbinic guidance to make sure it's ex executed appropriately. And there are boilerplate versions of Ashtar Chatzizachor by doing a quick Google search and you could find them online. Another option to comply with the halakhic requirements is to leave assets outside of a client's will. Many violations of Jewish inheritance law typically stem from assets through a civil will. However, there are a myriad of standard estate planning strategies that leave funds outside of the client's will that can help solve this issue. These include strategies like making lifetime gifts, using irrevocable trusts, leaving life insurance and retirement monies via beneficiary, and titling accounts so they, the assets pass directly to beneficiaries and not as an inheritance. All these approaches allow the client to give money to the intended beneficiaries outside of a will, which help avoid violating Jewish law and still get a client's assets to the intended heirs. When it comes to estate planning, one of the messages I like to tell my clients is that estate planning is not only about the transition of wealth, but it's also about the transmission of values to the next generation. More important than leaving money to kids is leaving them with a model on how to act, how to be a functioning member of society, how to have a healthy relationship with money and other important values. On that note, and closely related to estate planning, let's now discuss the concept of charitable giving or tzedakah from a Jewish perspective. A good first place to start is discussing maser. When it comes to tzedakah, many Orthodox Jews give, try to give maser, which means 10%. The question is, 10% of what exactly? There are a variety of opinions on this point alone, and it's important, again, that I advise you to speak to your rabbi. I've heard some people say 20% is actually more accurate. I personally aim to give around 10% of my net income before contributions to my retirement account, and before, and, uh, and be at, but after taxes. Some opinions also say that paying for yeshiva education may count towards this Maser guideline, but again, as the theme here, should ask your local rabbi. The second important item when it comes to tzedakah is to have a framework for giving. All investors, regardless of creed, should have a strategy for managing their money. They should also all have a disciplined framework for how they want to give it away. There are many rules according to Jewish law regarding giving charity and many books that have been written on the subject. However, an extremely general framework of how to prioritize giving charity is as follows. First, give to your family in need. Second, give locally to causes in your community. Third, give to charitable causes in Israel. And fourth, give to any other causes that are important to you. Naturally, every individual has their own passions. Those should be considered and will likely take precedence over this methodology. 
However, for a family who is unsure how to give, this framework can be instructive and a good starting point. It's also worth noting that creative charitable solutions for Jewish clients still work. Advisors have developed many creative ways for clients to give to charity. This includes using donor-advised funds to bunch contributions, charitable remainder trusts to efficiently remove assets from a client's estate, qualified charitable distributions from an IRA to minimize the client's tax liability, charitable gift annuities to ensure a stream of income while, benef while benefiting charity. It's important to note that all these strategies to be used within the context of, Jewish, of Orthodox Jewish uh, families. Now let's shift gears a bit and move to my next section, which is a very important one. We'll now discuss socioeconomic pressures, emotions, and the whole keeping up with the Joneses or Goldsteins mentality that is so prevalent within the Frum community. As Jews, we live in a classless society. And I don't mean we don't have class, we have a ton of class. I mean in a positive sense, since we all need the same resources like shuls, mikvahs, yeshivas, kosher foods, etc. So the guy who makes $100,000 a year may sit next to a friend in shul who's making $2 million a year. This is very common in what is so beautiful about our society. At the end of the day, we are all members of Klali's role equally, no matter how much money we make. However, the issue that comes up is the, the $100,000 a year guy can't keep up financially with the $2 million a year guy. And the $2 million a year individual shouldn't try to keep up with the billionaire who's in his dafiyomi year who he schmoozes with at the Kiddush every week. Unfortunately, that's easier said than done. It's only natural to want to fit in, and sometimes that means spending more money. These social pressures apply to how we decide to invest our money and how we live our lifestyle. Let's discuss both of these impacts, but start first with how it impacts our investing. Okay, I don't think I'm out of line in saying this, but I feel like most non-professional investors get their investment ideas from, from friends in shul or their brother-in-law who got his investment ideas from his friend at the Kiddush Club. <clears throat> That's just the reality of it. And it's so common that I've termed it the Kiddush Club portfolio. The reason for this is because these type of investment suggestions are often received in a casual setting from friends, possibly over a bowl of shallot and potato kugel. Unfortunately, the consequences of investing in such a way are no joking matter. The Kiddush Club portfolio is the result of conformity bias, where members of a community behave according to and make decisions based on what others deem acceptable. However, since every person's goals and financial situation are different, Adapting your investment approach to be similar to that of your friends and family can be detrimental to achieving your personal financial goals. Furthermore, what people typically share with their friends are the investments that they think are exciting. From my experience, exciting translates into risky, meaning these investments may make sense for a small group of institutional investors, but are not actually appropriate for the masses. Let's discuss just a few examples of what is found in the typical Kiddush Club portfolio and why most investors should avoid these strategies. And I should add another disclaimer at this point before people jump on me. I'm sure some people have made good money in one or more of these strategies. I don't deny that they can work, but they won't work for most people because they, they, you typ they're typically high risk. You usually need a seasoned professional to implement them. And even if you are working with a professional, you could still lose your shirt with any one of these strategies. And that's why they typically make, don't make sense for most investors. So here are some examples of the Kiddush Club portfolio strategies and why they won't work. The first is day trading. Day trading is gambling. When gambling at a casino, the deck is stacked against you. It's possible to win. However, the house holds an edge over the players, so the longer you play, the greater the odds that you walk away a loser. 
Similarly, if possible, it's possible to get lucky day trading by buying a stock right before it skyrockets in price and selling right before it falls. However, any long-term strategy that is trying to time when to go in and out of stocks will not succeed since short-term timing of the market is impossible to predict. Next is using options. An option is a contract that gives the investor the right to buy or sell a financial product and agreed upon price for a specific period of time. Options are available on numerous financial products, including stocks and ETFs. They're complicated and unnecessary to achieve your financial goals. Furthermore, few people can execute an option strategy successfully. You are likely not one of those people. Cryptocurrency, like Bitcoin, is not a business. It has no cash flow, is not transparent, is illiquid, and its price is driven by pure speculation. Is it real or just an apparition? I'm not even sure how to classify it, but what I can say it is the definition of, of speculation, and it's not the place to park, to park your family's nest egg. Private equity. Private equity funds typically invest in companies that are not publicly traded. Some common examples are venture capital and leveraged buyout funds. Most private equity firms are exclusively open to high net worth investors. While there's the potential for high returns, investors need to be comfortable with parting with their money for an extended period of time, sometimes between five to 10 years, while the strategy is implemented. In addition to the lack of liquidity and the layers of fees, there's also the very real possibility that the investments won't work out or will substantially lag the public markets. Next is hedge funds. Hedge funds are actively managed pools of capital whose managers use a wide range of aggressive strategies to try to deliver outsized returns. This may include using borrowed money to make investments and trading more esoteric products. There are thousands of hedge funds and each one should be evaluated based on their own merits. However, in recent years, hedge funds have been broadly criticized for their high fees and lackluster returns compared to the overall market. Real estate syndication. Real estate is a wonderful asset class with which many people are familiar with. One way to get exposure to this area of the market is through a real estate syndication where investors pool funds to purchase income-producing properties. The success of these types of deals depends on the location of the opportunity, type of property, the management of the project, where we are in the economic cycle, the experience of the deal manager, and many more. An investor should, re should evaluate each one of these things to increase their likelihood of success. This is also a friendly reminder that the real estate investments frequently don't achieve their intended performance targets and may not outpace the U.S. stock market either. Next is hard money loans. I feel like hard money loans were all the rage until rates started to climb and many of these loans started to default. A hard money loan is money lent to an individual or company instead of, a instead of by a bank. They're known as the loan of last resort, often a short-term way for individuals that are denied traditional financing to raise money quickly. These loans are much riskier than loans through traditional channels being given to individuals with a higher probability of default, and as a result, their yields are often much higher. And finally, a kiddish club favorite is initial public offerings or IPOs. An IPO is the process of offering shares of a private corporation to the public through a new stock issuance. There is a lot of excitement when a popular company comes to market, allowing investors to own shares. There's even more enthusiasm among those who could buy the stock before the general public. Unfortunately, all the exuberance creates tendency to make bad decisions, such as purchasing a company without doing your own due diligence or short-term trading to try to lock in an immediate profit. These behaviors won't contribute to achieving long-term success. 
If you do participate in an IPO, it's far more prudent to know what you own, why you own it, what purpose it serves within your overall portfolio, and then to hold the position for the long term. The overarching theme with all these strategies is it's common for folks to emphasize the sizzle and not the steak. Everybody will share the exciting features of these strategies. However, few will share their overall successes and how it compared to a simple portfolio of stocks, bonds, and cash. Your question now may be, well, you spent all that time telling us what to avoid. How should we invest our money in a way that is prudent? The answer is to focus on the tried and true methods that drive one's ultimate financial success. This includes spending less than you make, investing your savings using boring, plain vanilla investments like stocks, bonds, and cash, and this is very important. Getting the overall asset allocation correct, which is what percentage of your portfolio is in stocks, what's in bonds, and what's in cash, and that varies based on your goals and time horizon. At the end of the day, investing should be more similar to watching paint dry than a day at the racetrack. While the former is less likely to impress your friends, it does increase your probability of financial success. And one solution to avoid getting into imprudent investments, and something that I recommend to all my clients, is to establish an an investment policy statement, or an IPS. An IPS serves as a roadmap to help people achieve their financial goals and the lifestyle they want. A proper IPS should be set up before you start investing, It should be clearly defined your financial goals, time horizon, risk tolerance, liquidity needs, income needs, and anything else that is important to you and your family. An IPS is a living document, not one written in stone. So it should evolve as circumstances change and investors should reevaluate an IPS in the context of new family dynamics or financial needs. For example, experiencing a large windfall from the sale of a business or inheritance may require IPS revisions. At the end of the day, investing and financial planning is personal. Making financial decisions based on what others are doing can harm your ability to achieve your goals and live the life that you want. Properly crafting an investment policy statement can help you ignore all the noise and remain focused on what is actually important to you and your family. Now let's discuss the other important uh, impact due to social pressure, which are lifestyle decisions. The common example is if all your friends are going to Israel for Sukkot or Panama for Yeshiva break, you may feel inclined to do the same thing, even if your finances may be a bit tighter than others in the community. Of course, lifestyle is not limited to vacation. It could be cars, houses, clothes, and other activities and accessories. If your friends are living a certain way, then naturally you want to conform. It's only human nature. Right after Pesach this year, I actually received the following question from a person who reads my Jewish press column. And the letter read, Leading up to Pesach and over the holiday itself, I was inundated on social media with pictures for upscale Pesach programs. The pictures were five-star hotels and resorts, an overabundance of food, exotic excursions, and world-class entertainment. Some people likely spent six figures to take their family on one of these programs. Is it wrong for people to go on such a lavish Pesach program? The quick answer to that question is no. It's not wrong to spend a lot of money on your family or to go away for Pesach. And I would never suggest that. I have many very wealthy clients. And people should be able to spend their money as they wish, and they should be able to spend it on their family and indulging in a Pesach program. The issue with the opulence and what makes me feel uncomfortable was actually articulated very well in an interview I heard with Rabbi Jeremy Weider of Rosh Hashiva Yeshiva University. Rabbi Weider said... The issue is about being sneeous about money. As he described, typically the concept of sneeous is solely discussed in the context of how men and women dress. However, he explained that it applies to equally to other aspects of life, 
noting that according to Chazal, everything should be private unless there's a reason for it to be made public. The concept is particularly relevant when it comes to vacation. The biggest issue with Pesach programs and other forms of luxury is not the luxury itself. Rather, it's broadcasting one's vacation to the world via social media, discussing it with friends and acquaintances, or by some other means. For many people, half the fun of going away is letting everyone else know that you went away. This may sound innocent enough, but this lack of tzniyas exasperates the already prevalent issue in the from community of trying to keep up with the Goldsteins. Aside from causing general unhappiness, this may also unintentionally pressure people to overextend themselves financially. This is true regardless of your level of wealth, but is especially problematic for the many people in our communities who are struggling financially. The issue of Tznias is not limited to going away for Pesach. It is equally applicable to yeshiva break plans, summer trips, home remodeling, and other aspects of life. This need and desire to share our lifestyle with the world is far from ideal. Though it is not solely responsible, social media, for all of its merits, is one of the primary drivers of this brazenness. People work hard to be able to go away on holiday, and they have every right to enjoy it to its fullest. At the same time, a helpful perspective is to remember that everything we have comes from Hashem. We're simply stewards of the money that he has given us. It's incumbent upon us to behave in a manner that is appropriate and dignified for a God-fearing Jew, and hopefully the lesson that Sneas can extend past just the way we dress and influence how we conduct all aspects of our lives, including how we decide to go on vacation. Now let's move to our final topic this evening, which is retirement planning. So much of the same planning that takes place for non-Jewish families also takes place for Jewish ones as they approach retirement. This includes long-term care planning needs, mitigating sequence of returns risk, determining an optimal withdrawal strategy from our retirees' various accounts, social security claiming strategies, and others. These are all topics that you should work, with it, work through with your financial advisor. However, tying into our topic tonight, let's focus specifically on some unique themes that consistently arise in retirement planning when working with Orthodox Jewish families. The first is that high expenses will still remain. While the cost of yeshiva tuition may be less relevant once someone is retired, and I say less relevant because many yeshivas will request that grandparents help out their kids out with their grandkids' education, the reality is that the cost of living can still remain high. The need to keep kosher celebrate Shabbos and Yuntif and live walking distance to a shul do not change. Additionally, the cost of healthcare rising as one ages should be factored in as well. The next common theme is the desire to live near children, which also comes up frequently. As we all know, Jewish life is very centered around family and community. As time goes on, friends from the community will move away to be near their kids, and folks approaching retirement will likely follow this pattern. Understanding this dynamic is worth planning for well in advance. Next is the theme of moving to Israel. Many Jews have the dream of living in Israel, if not full-time, then perhaps part-time. I have a number of clients who decided to move to Israel where they retired or at least split their time between the states and Israel. Needless to say, there's a lot of planning involved in such a move, and I would encourage everyone to get proper financial guidance on the subject. I also have a past webinar. I actually just ran it this past Thursday talking about financial and tax planning. If you're moving to Israel, you can email me, and I'm more than happy to share that uh, recording with you. A few thoughts to keep in mind about Israel. Well, Israel has nationalized health care, which may remove some stress associated with long-term care planning. Finding out the specifics of this and other issues is imperative. 
The issue of renting versus buying comes up often if a client wants to move to Israel as well. Many popular areas that retiring Americans want to live in Israel have a more attractive rental market than a buying market. Jumping to buy real estate in Israel and all its associated complications should not be done on a whim. Anecdotally, I have many clients who split their time between the U.S. and Israel, and I manage their investment assets here in the States. This may be done for a variety of reasons, some of which may be that the U.S. is the safest and most robust capital market system in the world. <clears throat> the fees associated with an investment advisory relationship may be more modest in the U.S. relative to other countries. Additionally, the accessibility from the U.S. to markets around the world is broad, and the advice I give relative to firms in other regions of the world may be far more robust and holistic in nature. If you are planning to move to Israel part or full-time, it's worth getting a specialist involved to advise you appropriately. So now that we discussed some of the themes and challenges, let's touch on some helpful practical solutions for from retirees. And I touched on some of these suggestions already in the section of affording a from lifestyle, but they're even more important when it comes to someone who's approaching retirement. The first is proactively downsizing. Large homes cost more to maintain than smaller ones. Aside from general upkeep costs, the property taxes, insurance, and utilities can all be incredibly burdensome for retirees who are living on a fixed income. The most successful retirees I speak to are the ones who decided to downsize sooner rather than later. One of the worst things that could happen is to downsize during unfavorable circumstances. <clears throat> The next solution is to proactively re relocate to a locale where the cost of living is cheaper. I've brought this up a few times already, but there are plenty of Jewish communities around the country. Not every area costs the same as Long Island, Westchester, or Los Angeles. Retirees should take advantage of this geographic arbitrage. Next is working longer or part-time. Many clients will tell me that they want to retire, visit their grandkids, and spend the rest of their time attending shiurim. The reality is none of these pursuits are full-time activities. I encourage many clients to continue working if possible. If it's not for the money, it's to keep them socially engaged, mentally sharp, and provide structure throughout their day. This is true for clients of all backgrounds, but I do have this conversation frequently with my Jewish clientele. The benefits of continuing to work are immense. If working longer is not practical and you still need more money, then other items to consider include delaying Social Security until you're age 70, getting more exposure to high-income investments, realizing capital gains in addition to dividends and income payments to meet your cash flow needs, and exploring annuities as a form of guaranteed income. Every one of these approaches requires specific knowledge and proper planning, and it behooves retirees to have an in-depth discussion with their financial advisor to determine a plan that makes the most sense for them. And when it comes to a successful and productive retirement, I look to my grandfather as an example, and I'll end with these thoughts. Just by way of background, my grandfather came to New York City in 1947 after experiencing the atrocities of the Holocaust. He didn't complete his schooling since the war interrupted his studies, yet in the United States, he managed to have a family, start a small business, he was an active member of his community, and he enjoyed a more than 30-year retirement before then passing away nearly four years ago at the age of 98. He was never a very wealthy man, which made his lengthy retirement on his modest nest egg noteworthy. The few things he did to help with his retirement that were especially important and a good take, final takeaway for everyone here are the following. First, he proactively downsized. After my grandfather retired, 
he and my grandmother sold their house and moved to a smaller house in Highland Park, New Jersey. Many retirees hesitate when it comes to downsizing. They stay in their current home too long, oftentimes resulting in selling their home later under less favorable or more challenging circumstances. Downsizing sooner can help simplify your life and minimize expenses, as I mentioned earlier. Additionally, moving into a residence that's more conducive to aging, like having fewer or no steps, is important. The second thing he did was he got rid of stuff. My grandfather never really accumulated many physical possessions. It just never really interested him. But whatever he did have, he tried to get rid of and give away to family or donate to charity during his lifetime. Giving away your things while you're alive can provide a tremendous sense of fulfillment and will also relieve your heirs of the burden of sorting through your stuff upon your death. Next is my Zaidi maintained a portfolio with a lot of stock exposure. So often folks who are entering retirement will flock to high quality bonds exclu exclusively. <clears throat> the reality is if you are relatively young, you may experience a 30 to 40 year retirement. In order to ensure that you don't outlive your assets, maintaining exposure to stocks, which historically have outpaced inflation, is crucial. It's one of the reasons my grandfather was never concerned about running out of money. In today's environment, hiding all your money in a money market account is the wrong approach, and that's despite the very attractive yields. Next, he began preparing for retirement years in advance. My grandfather had a small business selling and installing draperies. He told me that he stopped working when he no longer had the patience to deal with vendors and difficult customers, who he referred to as the Yentas. In truth, he was gearing up for his retirement years in advance. He developed a routine of community involvement, attending Hiram and visiting family, and this daily schedule stayed the same for most of his, during his retirement years. Part of his retirement routine was staying well informed. He followed the market religiously to stay on top of the latest news, news trends, and would call me daily to discuss his new stock ideas. He also read the Wall Street Journal cover to cover until failing eyesight made him switch to watching Fox News every day at a very high volume. <laughs> it's true. I, I couldn't even get a word in. It was so loud. Another thing that helped him immensely in retirement was his involvement with young people, which kept him young and sharp. After my grandmother passed away, my grandfather got a roommate who was a graduate student at the nearby university who was also 65 years his junior. During off hours, they had meals and conversations together, which helped him stay with it even in his 80s and 90s. He also helped the local elementary school with their Holocaust project every year. The key with all this, and something I repeat constantly to my clients who are approaching retirement, is that it's important to, to it's, a, it's essential to retire to something, not from something. The folks with the most fulfilling retirement maintain a strong social network, a way to stay mentally sharp, and the ability to keep their days structured. And my grandfather managed to achieve all three. And on that note, I've been doing a lot of talking. I hope everyone was able to take away at least a nugget or two to apply to their financial lives, and I'm more than happy to take questions now. I hope everyone enjoyed that speech. I know I enjoyed giving it. As you can tell, there are a lot of nuances when planning for Orthodox Jewish families, and families should work with trusted advisors who understand these themes and can offer helpful and realistic solutions. And with that, it's a wrap for this week's show. Any comments or questions, feel free to reach out directly to me via email. My email is jonathan at parkbridgewealth.com. I love hearing from my listeners. And finally, as I end every episode, the secret to financial success is no secret at all. It's a spend less than you make, invest the difference prudently, and ignore all the noise. See you next time on Jonathan on Money. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. I hope you were able to take away a nugget or two to apply to your own life. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you can be alerted whenever new episodes drop. 
If you'd like to submit a question that may be answered in a future show, please email me at jonathan at parkbridgewealth.com. Be sure to check out all Jonathan on Money content, including all of my articles, webinars, and videos by following me at Jonathan on Money on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Finally, if you like what you heard today, please rate the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps ensure that other personal finance enthusiasts can find the show as well. Thank you and catch you on the next episode of Jonathan on Money.